Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and this is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. We've got a veritable smorgasbord of subjects to feast on in this month's show. Forget Occupy London or Wall Street. Did the first social protests this year begin on the streets of Tel Aviv? We'll be speaking to one who witnessed the so-called tent protest at first hand and asking where Israel's protest movement goes from here. Will they be capable of making real change? The face of modern orthodoxy uncovered in Israel's hit TV series Srugim. We'll be speaking to co-creator Lazy Shapira about exposing the dating lives of Jerusalem's religious 20-somethings to a national and now global audience. American cartoonist Ellie Valley tells me why it's good to be provocative, but would even he draw the line at a classic Jewish schnoz? This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. And joining me in the podcast studio this month is Sounds Jewish regular, Middle East politics lecturer at New York University in London and scholar-in-residence at the London Jewish Cultural Centre, Haggai Siegel. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Lovely nice to, to see be you. here. You've added, have you added any more residences in the meantime since we had you on? May have done. You might have, don't you? You like the squirrel them under your belt. It's a busy time to be a Middle East commentator. Uh, too busy, I think, yes. Um, absolutely fascinating. But uh, the, the problem is one gets asked constantly questions that... There are no answers to, but um, I guess that's the fascination of it. Uh, we're also joined by the artist Jacqueline Nichols. Thank you for coming on the show. Jacqueline, you've currently got an exhibition on uh, the Oval House in uh, South London. Uh, what's the, the exhibition called? What's that one about? So that exhibition is called The Ladies' Guild Collection, and it's a series of paper cuts and silkscreen prints that explore uh, rabbinic um, texts that are particularly misogynist. And I mix these texts with sexualized images of women and all on a nice paper doily, like the true ladies' guilds use for, to set out their kiddishes. Now, I'm, I'm feeling there's some irony involved in this and some anger. There's a lot of anger and hopefully there's humour in there as well. I also teach um, at the London School of Jewish Studies. I teach Jewish Studies to adults and I'm involved in Jewish learning. And it came very much from my experiences of learning that I was coming across these misogynist texts and just closing the book. And I felt I couldn't do that anymore and I had to explore it and play with it. And so I got these texts out there and started having some fun. It all began with a single woman, Daphne Leaf, setting up a tent on Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv back in the summer, in protest at the lack of affordable housing. The idea caught the public imagination, and camps spread like wildfire across the country, amassing at one point over 460,000 protesters across Israel. That's 7% of the entire population, all united by their call for greater social justice. The protests forced the Netanyahu government to set up a committee led by former civil servant Manuel Trachtenberg to come up with some answers. So where does it all go from here? Is there any chance it will have a lasting impact on Israeli politics? First of all, here's a reminder of those heady days of summer when the tent protests were at their peak with blogger, writer and performer Robbie Greengrass on a line from Israel. The central place was, uh, was on Rothschild Boulevard. And during the day, it was something of a campsite for homeless and, and various other people, together with fantastic graffiti. But then in the evening, it was basically an open university. Um, I've, I've never known so many people learning about economics, probably ever. Um, 
that that was in the central place. But then there were in, in different places there were there were different emphases. Like in, in in South Tel Aviv, there was also the emphasis of of the the people in tents who were also uh, migrant workers from Africa who were who were looking for their rights. You had young people. You had old people. There was a guy there who was who held a sign saying, "I fought in the War of Independence in 1948, and now I'm fighting again." There were Ashkenazim and Mizrahim, as in the the more European-rooted Israelis and the more Ju the Jews coming from Arab lands. There were Arabs who were there in the demonstrations as well. That there was a mixture between a desire to be open and inclusive, but also an awareness that they'd kind of opened a Pandora's box because the moment you start talking about the price of something then you realize, certainly in Israel, and I think it's probably the same across the world, that there are so many other things involved and a realization that actually, you know, the cost of housing is also connected to how high the cost of baby food is, which is also connected to, um, to how many roads we don't have or do have, which is also connected. And so everybody was bringing, it was kind of like an open source protest like, you know, on, on the internet, that everyone was just chucking in their ideas. There was something um, or, or almost mainstream about this demonstration, which is kind of different from any demonstration that I've been to. Normally, there's a, there's a, we are in the minority, and we're shouting against those in power. Whereas what was beginning to grow over the summer was a feeling that actually we are the majority, and people will listen. Uh, and that was brand new. It felt like the first time in a hell of a long time that Israelis were able to move beyond the party political and find what they had in common rather than what separated them. Haggai Seagulls, we heard from Israel there. Did the, uh, the, the kind of ebullience of that movement reach us over here? Well, I, it's very interesting that I, I don't think many in this country, have, when they've analysed what's gone on at St Paul's, etc., think that it's got anything to do with what happened in Israel. But actually, if you look at what had proceeded in the world and try and find uh, a comparative movement, the idea of tents and occupation, but it's about ideas and policy, not about um, violence or pro revolution, etc. Actually, this is probably the best comparison. It was about a, a really genuine attempt to uh, publicly mobilize uh, a sentiment. It wasn't associated with the political camp. It was not designed to achieve what we might call the traditional political outcomes in Israel. Rather, it was saying, actually, uh, in this very divided country, there's one issue that we all agree on, and that is it's an incredibly difficult place to live. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult place to buy a house. And even basic foodstuffs are a struggle for many people in this country. That said, political activists are going to get involved, political uh, parties are going to seize upon it, and it, it, it has been become a magnet for those do you think it has legs as a movement now is it a movement i mean it, does it have a name does it i mean it already it's kind of splitting and dividing and it's, it's dissipated a bit yeah and i think that's the fascinating moment we are at the moment the tent camp has cleared and now they have to decide how to mobilize politically the problem of course the minute you mobilize in an organized way in in politics you have to pick policies you have to pick a stand and they were, I think, very clever at the beginning, saying we actually don't have specific policies. We have concerns and issues. We are deliberately trying to say, you know, all of Israel, come and join us. I think there is a culture of protests and demonstrations, but previously I think it's been more single issues. And what's interesting was the invitation to come and, from my understanding, just discuss all the different frustrations and to realise that 
um, the struggles that people were having weren't having them on their own. They weren't the only ones facing these issues. And you say, well, if you have a house, then you wouldn't take to the streets to protest. But actually, it's how did you get that house? What rate of mortgage are you paying? How are the property deals sewn up? The corruption that's got been taking mm. place in Israeli politics over, over the years and the levels of frustration and being able to communicate that and be able to voice that, I think was incredibly empowering. It got to the Knesset, it got to Mr. Trachtenberg. Did he make any proposals? Has it has it kind of had you know wider wider effect this protest? Well, I, I think what's fascinating is is the government felt there was no urgency on this issue. It, nobody thought it was a priority until you suddenly had this remarkable public event, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it was a national emergency. The government's though initial responses and many of the proposals have actually angered the protesters because one of their concerns was, and going back to the point Jack was making earlier about corruption, is that a very small amount of people in Israel not just control the economy around. Uh, housing and property, but also the decisions about where these things are made um, and, and where they're put up and who gets the contracts. And some of the initial proposals, in effect, said, oh, we've, we've created these committees who will do it fairly. But the people said, hold on a second, you've just, you've just re- replicated the old problem. You're handing the decision-making to f- three or four uh, key holders, uh, and we're just going to have all the same kind of problems again. And, and that's what's interesting. They, they've stopped the protest in terms of its physicality, but are very much continuing the movement because there's a feeling that really nothing has changed. And here's again where there's an Arab Spring echo. In many countries in the Arab world, they've offered one or two concessions in the hope that the protest will then go away. Yeah. And I think the Israeli, uh, these protesters are very cognizant that one or two minor concessions must not be seen as the end of this process. Jacqueline mentions uh, single-issue parties there. I mean, they have a history of kind of doing phenomenally well in certain elections. Is this, is this just a, a single-issue issue? It is, I think. And for those who've not followed Israeli politics, uh, Israel has a proportional representation system which basically allows it uh, a situation in which it's very easy for small parties to win seats. You only need to get 2% of the vote to get seats in the Knesset. And what this has encouraged over the years is you often get parties running on single uh, interest issues and but what happens is frequently is they'll do very well in one election they'll win a number of seats we had a pensioners party a couple of elections ago coming from nowhere winning seven seats being included in the israeli government we had in the 1970s a party pushing for electoral reform winning 15 seats being brought into an israeli government being promised electoral reform it didn't happen and so frustrated they never contested another election and this is what many in the camp are saying okay we could former party next election will do fantastic we'll win 10 seats and then people will forget about us we won't deliver we'll disappear from the political scene what's the point the old line is that people vote according to external security issues and i think what this has demonstrated is actually do the mainstream parties need to pay closer attention to the domestic issues to what's happening at home and the levels of frustration and whether or not it will actually change some quite deep-seated voting patterns so won't they be courted by the by the mainstream parties if these votes will be kind of added on to them won't they won't they would now be, be wooed. What's happened now uh, is that actually the traditional party of those issues, Labour, is now down to nine seats. They've gone from 50-odd to nine. Um, and so why I think that's interesting is there is now definitely a space for uh, a centre-left social movement to emerge because th- that traditional camp has got nowhere to naturally vote. You're listening to Sounds Jewish from The Guardian, sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London. (laughs) 
For many across Israel and now among Jews around Britain and beyond, this soundtrack marks the opening to one of the most unusual and successful TV shows to have come out of Israel, Srugim. Unusual because it features a section of society rarely seen on mainstream Israeli television, the modern orthodox. And crucially, it's been created and written not by secular TV folk, as is the way with most television in Israel, but by a team of modern orthodox writers and producers. Srugim, which refers to the knitted kippah or couple often worn by the religious, features the lives of six friends, young, free and unhappily single, hence the nickname From Friends, and their complicated lives in Jerusalem. The third series has just begun in Israel. Everyone's talking about it, so it's time we thought to catch up with the co-creator and producer of Srugim, Lazy Shapira. Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland met up with Lazy in the hip and rather noisy Jerusalem Shosh Cafe, where many of the series' key scenes take place. Jonathan started by asking what motivated Lazy to focus the series on the lives of the religious. Well, it was almost my own personal story, to tell the truth. I was single in my 30s, living here in Jerusalem in this neighborhood. Um, where you know certain synagogues are the trendy synagogues to go to on Shabbat. That's where you meet some people, and in a way, my friends that were surrounding me, um, they were like my family. You know, because religious society is very much based on community, and community is based on society. If you're single, you don't exist inside the religious community. You have to have a family. So people feel uncomfortable in their you know original communities. So they come here to Jerusalem to live among people like themselves, and in a certain way, we create a, an alternative family, an alternative community. And my friends were really my family for those ten years that I lived here as a single person. The area is known as the swamp, as if it's just in a way of a great hardship being single and religious in Jerusalem. Is that right? I think it's two things. It's a swamp because it's. Uh, Everyone knows each other. It's a little bit sticky. Uh, there's something nice and familiar and warm about it. On the second hand, you want to get out of it. Uh, there's, there's good things and bad things about the swamp. And it's very um, striking that the stories almost always turn on religion, one way or another. People fall out over a question of observing the Sabbath. Uh, there are re- religious prohibitions on couples touching and being together. Almost all of the storylines, one way or another, come back to that. There's nothing sort of general about it. But again, was that a deliberate conscious choice? Um, I don't know if it was deliberate. We were really telling stories. A lot of it is based on true stories that we knew. Uh, of course, we dramatized them a little bit more for TV. Uh, but I think that's what makes the show more interesting. Maybe we did do it uh, intentionally that the, the conflicts are conflicts that you never saw before on TV because they're conflicts of religious people, a little bit different of what you're used to seeing. And how, what's been the response? I mean, uh, there is a, a small uh, underground trade in copies of Srugim going on in the British Jewish community. What's been the impact here? Um, I divide it into two. There's the general public, the secular public that's not religious. In general, they love the show. It's the first time that they saw religious people in this way. Um, a lot of people told me that they, they changed their attitude towards religious people because of the show. Some people told me they want to light Shabbat candles after they saw the show. That was not my intention, but, you know, if that's what happens, why not? Religious people is a little bit more complex because they see themselves for the first time on TV in the most authentic way they ever saw it. Because we really worked on authenticity that should really look real. And so on one hand, you have people who are love it because they say, wow, you, you, you succeeded in bringing our, us to TV, you know, in the, more, the most you know, original way possible. Other people feel a little bit uncomfortable about things, seeing themselves on TV, and they're a little bit mad at us as creators that we 
how do they they say to to you wash your dirty laundry outside that we're washing the dirty laundry of our society in front of the public and everyone's going to know now that we have dilemmas and that we have problems and we're not perfect. It's extremely authentic to an outside viewer watching it. What about the and the acting has been praised as being of, of a really high standard. I'm guessing just watching it that the actors themselves come from that background. They are dirty. They are religious. <laughs> Tell me the truth. Not at all, nothing. Um, out of the five main characters, one has a slight traditional background. Amir, the one, uh, Amos Taman, the one who plays Amir, he's from a Tunisian traditional family, but he's not religious himself, but he's familiar. The rest are totally Tel Aviv secular. And I did a lot of work with them. Among other things, I bought them for a Shabbat here in Jerusalem in the swamp. They spent the whole Shabbat here. They prayed in the trendy synagogues. The boys slept in a boys' apartment, the girls in a girls' apartment. They went to those Shabbat meals like we see on the show. They went through the whole experience, and that Shabbat really helped them a lot to understand what they're doing. It's very funny because I learned a lot about them. Because to tell the truth, I never knew uh, non-religious people before. I grew up among religious people. I learned with religious people. I went to the army with religious people. So for me, it was very you know uh, eye-opening the the you know the contact with people who are not religious. And for them, the same thing. They never had a religious friend before. They never really took a real peek into religious life. You know, they just saw what they saw on TV. They see religious people. It has to do with, uh, you know, uh, settlers, politics. They never saw it in a human context, and now they do. People watching this show from the outside will notice there are no Arab characters in the show, apart from, I think, once uh, when the Yifat and Amir spot two people who they think are Arabs, and they're not Arabs, and they run away. I mean, that is, you know, it's a fifth of the population of the country. Uh, tell me about, first, the, the, the fact that they are absent from this show, and also perhaps something of how they, as viewers of the show, have reacted. Well, they're absent in the show because they're, you know, they don't have to do with this story. If it was a political story or something that took place maybe in the settlement or something like that, maybe we'd show them. But they, in this bourgeois life in Jerusalem, there's, you don't have Arabs in your life. Um, and, you know, enough we introduced religious characters, we can't add, you know, maybe another authentic character from a different type. You know, we're talking, this has to do with religious people. Even secular people are, are almost absent from the show. There's only one secular person. It's a show about religious people. Arabs themselves, it's very interesting. I've heard responses that some of the Israeli Arabs uh, connect to the show. They feel it's, especially women, because they feel it has to do with their life. It has to do with society that's struggling between um, modern life and a, a traditional life. Uh, I even have an Arab fan on the Facebook from Egypt who's a big fan of the show. Uh, they somehow connect if they see something similar between our societies. Uh, Jacqueline uh, Nichols, you're still with us uh, as our guest in the studio this week. You're a modern Orthodox woman. You yes. actually lived in this part of Jerusalem, the the Katamon. Yes, I lived there for. We lived there for two years. I wasn't single there. I was married then, but we lived there. Yes. Well, there were married couples in in, in yes, this cafe. There there are, season yes. one of them, and he's yes, trying to get her to wear a wig, and she won't. Yeah. Uh, so, did, did did the the lives of the of the people in Sogim strike a chord with you? Very much so, in a kind of slightly wincing, painful way, actually. Oh, well, how, then it's really close. Yes, how close it was. And I don't think just kind of modern Orthodox people in Israel, actually. I think it struck a chord with a lot of modern Orthodox people around the world. And um, in very subtle ways, um, there was a lot of very recognisable situations that came up. Such as? Um, well, one which springs to mind, which is a very subtle thing. It's, I think it's the closing scene in the first episode. They, it's a Friday night. Um, they've kind of had quite a grim Friday night um, meal together these friends and and they're all kind of 
just before you go to bed, you're reading, but because you're orthodox, you don't turn lights on and off on Shabbat and your time switch has gone off, but you still want to read. And you have this scene of somebody sitting by the light of the toilet because you've left the toilet light on reading the paper. And I think everybody who has kept Shabbat at some point in their life has done that. And it was just a tiny little touching thing that instantly said to me anyway, is like, we do know how you live. This is very recognisable. We are going to tell your story. But I think there are other things which shed light on actually the complexities and the nuances within being orthodox, that it isn't a monolithic way of being, that there are differences. And there are differences within the characters as well. They don't all express their Jewishness in the same way. Uh, one of the, I think, the very clever ways that Scrogrim does this is actually by their use of clothing, that they all dress actually slightly differently, like quite codedly. They, 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 they're quite different. Can you, can you explain them? Because, I mean, I, I, would have, I would have watched it and then not kind of picked up on some of these. So, so Hodaya, who is, who's having a religious crisis in her identity, she's, uh, she's one of the main characters. Right. What does she wear that particularly so, marks her out? Well, she keeps wanting to not be identified as religious and then other people keep identifying her as religious. So even though she's wearing trousers and she's wearing tight trousers, she doesn't wear particularly revealing tops. She she wears actually quite covered up. Um, and it's only actually in the second series where she really does decide to break free that she um, reveals a bit more of her body. And there's a fascinating scene where she's teaching an actress who's going to play the part of a religious person how to how to be religious and the actress comments on how religious girls stand with their whole their shoulders kind of hunched over hiding their body and it's these little touches currently one of the one of the hot stories in, in israel is, is the defacing that's going on uh with uh female image that of adverts for fashion and for perfume and for creams are uh, being defaced in in religious areas in modern orthodox areas and yet we've got a serious like this which is giving uh, orthodox women a strong voice and a strong cultural role uh, there's there seems to be a, v- a very bitter pull here well the bitter pull i think it's not just actually about defacing the advertising um what seems to have happened is that advertisers are self-censoring so they're saying we're going to have advertising in jerusalem there is a strong orthodox community that are quite um vocal and therefore we don't want to offend them so they will deliberately choose to put advertising that doesn't show women's um a woman's face a woman's body but they'll maybe show like a bag with a hand or something there are campaign groups that have noticed that and i think there's one campaign which is to show regular women on posters on the streets of jerusalem to fight that i mean your work uh, which is beautiful and um, and Thank as you. i mentioned earlier full of anger and irony uh, is you know it is a, it is a battle to to find the, the 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 I suppose the voice of the modern orthodox woman. Uh, you kind of are, are subject to all these rules to to I suppose the ultra orthodox and you know their wish to not show the female form face, and yet you you struggle with that in your work. How do you keep that that balance going? How do you live among it yet also criticize it? Um, that is a very good question, and I don't know if I have a very concise answer in terms of to take on this and to be aware of the misogyny and yet also to live in a community where it might not be as clearly labelled as it is in a kind of ultra-Orthodox way, but it nevertheless exists. You know, in terms of modesty, for example, which is part of this, uh, the advertising campaigns not mm. to show the film at form, I don't, I don't know where fashion's going now, but I gather that hemlines are getting longer, sl- sleeves are getting longer, that covering up is, is more prevalent, not less prevalent. Well, it's becoming stricter. It's becoming... Um, 
it's definitely becoming more um, scrutinized, I think, and less um, of open to individual interpretation. Uh, so it's prescribed? I mean, they, they, you know, that it, 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 there are rules now that you have to follow? One of the entertaining in a very heartbreaking way things I've done recently is go through the different types of modesty literature that is put out there. And there are books with minute detail in terms of what um, is acceptable and unacceptable. And every so often pamphlets and things will go around um, blaming various of society's ills on um, what the women are wearing. And this isn't unusual for a religious society that the um, that the spiritual level or the religious seriousness of a family, of a person, is judged on what women are wearing. And that happens in a lot of different religious communities. I mean, is, is there a reason for it, do you know? Is there a political or cultural or a sudden kind of uh, reversion to, to you know, the strict roots of, of that religion? Haggai, have you It's fascinating because it's abroad? a trend that we're seeing in Judaism, we're seeing in Islam, we're seeing in many other religions. And I think it's a sense that in, in, in many religious communities, particularly in the monotheistic faiths, particularly ones that are minorities uh, in, in other countries, there is a perception of a society which is moving increasingly rapidly in the opposite direction and that almost there needs to be an internal correction to ensure that those processes uh, aren't occurring. And yet what's fascinating, of course, is that the concepts of feminism, the idea of independent women, which, by the way, is, of, of course, happening economically. This is also part of the Srogim thing in Israel, is that you now you've got women, even the modern Orthodox community, who can run businesses, who have their own money, who don't have to be reliant in a way they used to be on a man. So you've, on the one hand, got uh, uh, influences which... C- communities are wanting to avoid but those very same influences are actually occurring within the community Uh, and for those who believe that being orthodox be it jewish or muslim or whatever and having a certain amount of women's rights is not a contradiction this is increasingly a problematic space um, and it's something that you examine very much in your work i've got here the uh, the paper cuts brochure uh, for your for your current exhibition at the uh, mm. down in south london at the cricket at the oval house yeah. uh, where i've been very good space that it is we've got sort of doily doily papers here cutting with very intricate Cut, cut work, which you must have spent hours doing. I mean, really fine, fine filigree kind of work here. Uh, it's, got, it's got texts uh, in there in, in the paper, but it's also got images of naked women. It's got sexualized women. It's got women in, in various forms of dress and undress. These must be extremely provocative images where you come from. Absolutely. When I started the series, um, I had the I placed the text in the middle of the. Um, it's kind of an oval doily. Um, and I placed the text in the middle, and in the outside where the kind of lace work is, um, there was lots of sort of flowers and leaves, and the women were hidden at first. And as I progressed in the series, um, they got bolder and bolder, and the last two, there's actually naked women right in the middle of the doily. Um, The last one I did, um, yes, there's a woman sort of sticking her backside out um, right at smack bang in the middle. I think... That shows a development for me in the series. Each time I kind of did a new one, I was crossing my own boundaries, my own kind of, can I go there, can I show that? Um, But I felt that the work required it. As shocking and as provocative, the use of, I mean, some of the images are taken from S&M pornography and erotica, and as shocking as... Not Jewish S&M photography. I'm not sure there is that subgenre, but as shocking as those images are, that's how shocking I find these texts that these texts that sexualize women, that um, dismiss them either because there's something um, animalistic about their sexuality that to be sort of distant from and that can be corrupting, or that they um, there's one there about um, not teaching women because um, they just turn um, 
they just turn it into nonsense and it's not appropriate to and these teach are, women. These are, quotes from, are these from the Torah or these from the Midrash? They're from, they're from, some of this is from Genesis, so they're actually um, in the, in no, the text. All the texts, aren't, all the texts are rabbinic texts. There isn't any actually from the Torah. They're from the rabbinic discussions. So they're from the Mishnah or they're from the Midrash yes. or they're from the Talmud. You mentioned that you've had Orthodox audiences at your, at your exhibition. Can they even see such things? They have to turn their eyes, wouldn't they? Uh, well, that's their choice to come and see or not to see. One of the texts that I've used um, is actually the blessing that men say first thing in the morning about not being made a woman, a sort of blessing of not being made a blessing woman. Blessing for not being created a woman. Yes, and um, that was actually um, prompted by a discussion I had with a friend of mine who's a very serious Torah teacher. Um, she has four boys, and it upsets her greatly that they say this in the morning. And that blessing has actually kind of really hit a chord with a lot of women who kind of you know it's there you've kind of made your peace with it you've put it away but actually if somebody really asks you about it you find it painful and hurtful maybe I've kind of opened a bit of a Pandora's box for myself actually with it because I, I, I thought I'll just do a few I'll get that I'll sort of scratch that itch get that out my system and then carry on with work that I was actually planning on I was actually planning to do a completely different set of work um, and it sort of snowballed and it snowballed as people have reacted to it have responded to it and actually my own sensitivity to this has become heightened as well but let's not pretend it doesn't happen anywhere else and what I've tried to do in the paper cuts and that maybe it um, that will be the next step is making it more overt, is actually how it's reflected in other societies as well. Now, you may not think of the cartoon as a particularly Jewish art form, but there has been a long line of Jewish cartoonists going back to the creators of Superman, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, to Bob Kane's Batman. This latest is rather different, though. Ellie Valley is now the artist-in-residence at The Forward, America's leading Jewish newspaper, producing not tales of superheroes, but topical and often controversial commentary on the latest events. When I spoke to him, he'd been contemplating those Occupy Wall Street protests, now dismantled. I just did a comic that came out this week um, where a recurring character of mine, Stuart the Jewish Turtle, visits the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, and how is, how is Stuart the Jewish, oh. Jewish Turtle at, when he gets to Wall Street? Because he, he travels around in a little box, doesn't he? Uh, he never exits his cage because he's, he's you know, sort of trapped in his cage. He sits there all day, you know, looking at all the signs and, um, or just like looking down until finally like the 25th or 26th sign is an anti-Semitic sign and then he concludes that the entire protest is anti-Semitic. <laughs> uh, that, you know, that's sort of his... Uh, and, and that's a direct reference, because there, there was a, a Jews own the bank sign, wasn't there, on Wall Street, which, which sort of attracted criticism, saying that, you know, the, the, whole, the whole Occupy Wall Street uh, protest was, was discredited because, I mean, it, it, it veered into what I think there was one anti-Semitic comic made, made there. Uh, that, was, that, yeah. was, that was your response to that, to, to that story. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Is Stuart the Jewish turtle, is that always his kind of default reaction, to, to dismiss everything as anti-Semitic? The, the recurring um, sort of motif of the comic is that the last two panels is that the the penultimate panel is him sitting in his cage, just stewing and uh, thinking. And then the final panel is the close-up of him enraged, saying, "God damn anti-Semite!" <laughs> I like Stuart the, the Jewish turtle. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, and, and the ones in South Africa, like he uh, sits on a plane in between Alan Dershowitz and Michael Oren, his two heroes, and uh, he gets into a conversation with Oren. And Dershowitz is in a straitjacket the whole time. Uh, you write for the Forward, uh, a Jewish newspaper in English and in, in Yiddish, and on, on the web, of course. How would you describe your work for them as artist in residence? I think 
in terms of the Israel issue, uh, it's, it's not just, you know, dealing with ideological battles about Zionism. We happen to be living in an age in which Israel has arguably the most extremist, you know, government in its history. And so this is not just, uh, you know, oh, I'm just going uh, to draw a little comment about Israel today. And right now what's happening is, uh, is, is really, uh, it, it's unprecedented, dangerous, and compelling from the freedom of expression point of view. What, what is going on in the Knesset and Netanyahu's government. And, um, and so it's really ripe for discussion and debate. And so uh, it just happens that I am the artist in residence during this period. So I am doing a lot of comics about Israel. But, um, you know, it's like, it's kind of like for satirists, it's actually a great period, even though for humanity, it's a terrible period. But how far are you prepared to go in, in, in your satire? I mean, is there a, is there a tipping point? Is there, is there something that's too much? There are some lines that I wouldn't cross, um, just because... Uh, they, they become so inflammatory that the humor of the comic uh, gets, you know, uh, diminished. Where, where, which are the ones that you feel are too, uh, are too, too much to cross? <laughs> um, I don't want to say it now because if I do cross it, then, then this will be used against me. Right. But um, even though, no matter what I do, I'm actually very conscious of trying to avoid drawing Jews' noses too big. Yeah. I know that I'm getting attacked. I get attacked in the comments. I, it's, been, it's been said that, I, that you know, I'm drawing these anti-Semitic characters. So I actually do my best to draw these, you know, Lilliputian noses, you know. Um, but unfortunately, I, I, I still get attacked for it. So um, I, I'm aware of the, of the history of anti-Semitic caricature, and I, uh, sometimes I will tweak with it, but usually, you know, subverting it, you know. Um, like, for instance, my comic Israel Man and Diaspora Boy is using anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes to, to draw the way that ideologues perceive diaspora Jews. How, how, how do they perceive them? Um, as these uh, spineless ghetto dwellers who are unable to protect themselves and are about to vanish from the face of the earth, either physically or demographically. What, does you, what do your parents make of your art, if I may ask? I mean, because it seems that, you, you, you know, you, you're very, you, your work is insidery and it's, it's critical of, of, a, of, a, of a sort of generation uh, and of an attitude. What do they think of you? Do they, are they some of the people that kind of, you know, fuel Stuart the Jewish turtle, saying, ah, goddamn anti-Semites? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, my mom, my mom, I think, loves the comics, and, and I actually did uh, my comics presentation to her um, group, the South Jersey Secular Jews, which is, I love that title, you know, <laughs> it sounds like something out of Monty Python, um, <laughs> the uh, Life of Brian, you know, one of those Judean front groups. Um, so, you know, she, she loves the comics. I think my father uh, might not quite grasp them, you know, as... Um, as much wrong, but you know, he he will he appreciates the fact that I'm doing them and he's proud of me for that and I think he will defend me um in whatever circles might attack me. But uh I I think my mom has more of a sort of um maybe visceral appreciation for them. Ellie Valley talking to me from New York. Uh, Jacqueline, as a, as a fellow artist, I think you know Ellie Valley, don't yes. you? You can appreciate the, the struggle within the community, how far to go, how, how much to anger, how much to push from, from your own work, from what we heard from you earlier. Absolutely. I mean, I think it touches on that. Oh, you know, it's all very well to say these things and to criticise, but you shouldn't be doing it in public. It's that whole kind of shouldn't wash your dirty laundry in public. And it's something that I've been accused of. And you know, the important thing about dirty laundry is it needs to be laundered. And those who don't like to wash their dirty laundry in public don't tend to do it in private either. And um, and these things do need to be discussed. And I think with Ellie's cartoons, I think it struck a chord with a lot of people because he 
in a very exaggerated way, voices a kind of frustration of uh, the um, of the kind of Jewish establishment and leadership not really being representative of the diversity um, within the community. I have to say that one of the themes that he plays a lot with is one I think we need to have more of a conversation in this country about, and that is the knee-jerk response to shout anti-Semitic and everything we don't like. That anything that is said in a manner that is found problematic anywhere across the Israel or the Jewish spectrum, you respond to anti-Semitic. He does not in a way that I think uh, some find too provocative, but I think it's a conversation we need to have. Jacqueline, you find him too provocative? As a provocateur yourself? (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I don't know if he goes far enough, to be honest. Mm. Um, If you're in a community, you need to be in a community with your eyes open and questioning and challenging and not just accepting the labels that are put on you. Uh, Jacqueline Nichols, congratulations on on your exhibition. It's on at the Oval House Theatre Gallery in the Oval in South London until December the 10th. So you can go down there and see it. Uh, And that is it for this month's Sounds Jewish. My thanks to Haggai Seagal as ever, to Jacqueline Nichols, uh, and of course to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. Don't miss out on our special end-of-year Hanukkah show next month, but for now, from me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, it's goodbye. Shalom, shalom.